Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have had and made significant transformational changes, which in turn has led to naming of periods we call ages. You've just personally experienced the information age and what an amazing ride it has been and will continue to be with 5G and with the IoT. We've got a lot ahead of us. Now consider that you might right now be on the age of another transformation, this transition to the age of infinite, an age which is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but a redefining of a lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an unbelievable sci-fi movie that has come to life as today we create a new definition of the future. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Moonhot Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then we want to use those endeavors, the paradigm shifting, the thinking, the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring the acquiring of resources in space will save Earth. And we have a phenomenal guest with us, Dana Andrews. How are you, Dana? I'm great. Well, Dana's history goes back to 1965 in the, in the space business. He's been with Douglas Space. He's been a long history with Boeing. But I think the important part makes this interview interesting was one of our team members from Germany had recommended Dana's book to me, which is called chasing the dream. I don't normally promote books, but I, he said, you've got to buy this book. You've got to buy this book because it gives a whole history of space. And David, you're not a space person. And I read the first maybe 20 pages and Dana outlined how there was a rocket plane way back when. And NASA, I believe, or whoever was working on it, when they discontinued that rocket, plane that this endeavor, they took all the data and tossed it. And if we had it today, it would, it might've revolutionized, evolutionized the way we look at space. And I said, I cannot read anymore because if you know how this program works is I do not know what the top, I only know the title that we've created together, but I don't know the content. And so Dana is an expert on all sorts of categories of space what we're going to talk about, you'll learn from him. So Dana, you have an outline for us? Yeah, I do. Um, I, the, the way I wrote up the, the thought here was, can development of space help Earth's primary challenges? And I do believe it does. And so I have some subtopics. First of all, what are Earth's primary challenges? Topic. Yeah, well, primary challenges. Okay. Next. Uh, the second one is what is the best approach to raising the world standard of living, which ties into the challenges of living. Next. And one of the things I'm going to talk about there is we need more energy. We need more power. Yeah. And so the next topic is how do we increase power availability without fossil fuels? And as you know, fossil fuels are what's causing global warming. So that's why we need to eliminate them. Okay, next. What do we do about long haul trucks, ocean shipping, and aircraft? 
they are particularly dependent on fossil fuels, which is why they're a special topic. Long haul trucks was the second one. Ocean shipping and aircraft. And aircraft. Okay, next. How does space development play into solving these challenges? These challenges. Next. What are the elements we need to harvest on the moon? Next. Uh, where are they found on the moon? Okay. Found on the moon. Okay, so let's start with number one. You start. Take us where we need to go. Okay, well, the as I see it and a lot of other people see it, our primary challenge is that is overpopulation is using up uh, resources. We're, we're wasting our environment and we're, we're faced with global warming and they're interrelated. Uh, the more people require more power, which requires more fossil fuels, which drives global warming. Okay. So the challenge there is we need to, um, we need to raise the standard of living and the level of education. And we find out when that happens, uh, the fertility rate goes down. And in parts of the world right now, if we could reduce the fertility rate, population, Earth, Earth's population would actually level off and begin to decrease. But we need to get that level, that standard of living up. And that requires energy and resources. Well, uh, when you say, and it's, this is a, a, my own internal thought, when we talk about increasing the standard of living, uh, this is maybe a personal question. Do you believe that it's actually increasing the standard of living because are we leading better lives or increasing a, a, a different and improved or an alternate standard of living when we think of raising this standard of living, when you think of this construct? Okay, well, I'm just saying um, more resources, uh, better housing, better education, better infrastructure, uh, all the things that we, you know, that we value in in the first world, as we say, uh, in you know, developed countries, that works. Okay. Um, you know, better medicine, better healthcare. I mean, it's all there, and it's all tied to the to um, the infrastructure and the energy available. Okay. So yes, I would yes, if we increase or have increased population, which the estimates are in 40 years will be about 10 billion people. We will need more energy to be able to supply them, but yes, it is harming or causing challenges to global warming. Yeah, and I'm I'm a little far afield here as a rocket scientist, but um, <laughs> it, it's it's easy to see these trends. It, if you do a little research, it's not hard to see what's happening. So, so what part, and I just want to dig a little bit here, what part of global warming, when you think about it, are your primary categories which you feel that we would be addressing or are causing challenges? Okay, well, there's three approaches to solving global warming. The first one is eliminate burning fossil fuel and dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Uh, that's the primary one, and that's the one I'm addressing here. There are other, there are other approaches. Uh, one is you can uh, 
increase the uh, the albedo of the of the Earth. In other words, um, okay. For instance, uh, when Krakatoa blew up, you know, four hundred years ago, yeah, um, it it dumped a bunch of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, and we had the the year without summer. Uh, you know, what's 1608, 1609? Um, the world got extremely chilly. So one way to beat global warming is dump stuff and, you know, increase the cloud layers. And you can do that, well, increase the albedo. You, you can do it either in the atmosphere or at the surface. You know, if you covered the Earth's deserts with uh, mylar foil to reflect the the sun's rays back out of the atmosphere, uh, you could reduce the albedo and reduce the temperatures, but that's fairly labor intensive. That's a, I hadn't even thought about that, but yes, you could, uh, you could put more clouds in the sky and therefore you could decrease the global warming because the, reflect, the reflection wouldn't happen the same way. Okay. And, and that's, there has been proposed. One of the things you could do is doctor the jet fuel that, that airliners burn. Oh, really? To, okay. to generate clouds. Oh, to, to seed clouds. To seed clouds. But that's, that's more hands-on than most governments want to, to get to. So it, it's, I doubt it'll, it could, it's possible, but I doubt it'll happen. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to, is to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, we can either go bananas planting or you can, there is all kinds of devices being built and tested to do that, to actually remove CO2 from the air. And they sequester it and pump it down underground uh, where it'll stay for millions of years. Mm -hmm. so, so there's, you know, like I say, there's three different approaches. Uh, the one I favor and I think most people favor is let's stop burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And that's the one I'm addressing sort of in this talk. Okay. So, okay. So then, so take it from, so we want to increase the standard of living, decrease the population, housing, education, infrastructure, uh, medicine, all of these things, all tying to a need for energy. Yeah. Well, energy enables all that. Um, if you look at plots of, of standard of living versus energy consumption, it's very, there's a very clear um, curve that shows the more energy you consume, the higher the standard of living, the better infrastructure, medicine, etc. Uh, all that's been plotted and you can, you can find that data. Okay. So how do we do this? Or... Okay, well, so the, the bottom line is we need to we need to reduce fossil fuel burning. And, okay. and that's kind of the, the theme of this talk. Um, now, energy is divided up into sort of stationary and mobile. If you, you wanna break it down. Uh, there's electric, a, a lot of our civilization is powered by electricity, um, but a lot of it is powered directly. We burn, uh, oil and natural gas to heat our houses and factories. Um, we burn gasoline and diesel in our cars. We burn diesel and jet fuel in our uh, large, you know, uh, 
uh, freighters and airplanes. So that's all contributing CO2 to the atmosphere. Uh And as I'm sure you're aware, if we don't do anything, if we just ignore this, by 2100, the the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is going to reach about 1,000 parts per million. And the last time we saw 1,000 parts per million was during the Cretaceous. Okay. And, and that's, you know, 20 some million years ago. And during the Cretaceous, St. Louis was on the ocean. In other words, the entire center of the United States was, was covered with salt water. So I have a feeling if we let it get that bad, uh, we're going to have some real issues. So you said the, the estimates for a thousand parts are per million was when? Um, it, 2100. Okay. 20, 2100, which is 80 years away. Not far. Uh, yes, geologically speaking, not far. Okay, got it. Um, so that says we better pay attention, we better do something. So um, if you look at, well, first of all, uh, we are, we're making good inroads in generating electricity using renewable resources. I'm talking windmills, I'm talking solar farms. Um, we've sort of exhausted our hydroelectric. There's really not much more hydroelectric we can do because we've, we've got dams on all the major rivers. Mm-hmm. Nuclear should have taken care of this problem. But um, nuclear power plants have a miserable record for safety. Um, and that's not because it's inherent to the design, it's inherent to the way they've been operated. Um, so that's, that's a gone, okay. That opportunity is probably passed. There, the, yeah. uh, on two sides, the hydroelectric, I don't know if you've heard about these, uh, this, these, some technology I've seen, they're looking to take um, let's call it a set of stairs. It's not exactly a stair uh, or, or a, uh, another one is a, like a, a drill bit of water where you take a small river and on one side, you put this ladder step ladder configuration. And so now you could do smaller rivers and places without damming up uh, configurations, which is they're looking to use that throughout Asia, which I think is an interesting approach. And these new nuclear facilities that I've been reading about, and you probably have heard about, are these micro or smaller facilities that can generate a tremendous amount of energy, but still are uh, fairly small, small footprint. So we are working in that direction, but in 80 years, it, it would ha- we'd have to move very quickly to be able to solve it on a global level. Yeah, the the small river power uh, sounds very infrastructure heavy. Uh, the the micro plants, nuclear plants, the beauty of those is they're built in a factory, and they can be trucked to yep. locations, and they can they can serve neighborhoods, and they're buried, and they're designed to be fail safe. In other words, there are no operators. Yep. <laughs> to, to screw things up. <laughs> yep. So, so that's, that, but, but it's not enough to be able to handle 10 billion people. 
Oh, it is, but we're not, the government is not spending enough money to bring them online in any time frame that would help. The problem is, is that, you know, there's, uh, they're currently funding one test nuclear plant. It's gonna go into Idaho. Um, and it's a little bigger than the, the kind that you can build in a factory and deliver by truck. It's bigger than that. So they're not addressing the real problem and, and they're doing it extremely slowly. And the propensity for people to accept these technologies is really going to be challenging. I, while living in Luxembourg, we drive over to, I think it was France. And there were, the, there's a nuclear power plant not far. And there's a lot of concern whether if something happened in France, it would impact Luxembourg. And so there's a challenge between the older technology and the newer technology, but there's enough of that older technology out there that I do know there is a concern. So well, the French that, did it right though. The, mm -hmm. the French, um, the people running the plant have graduated in nuclear engineering. <laughs> okay, They're, they know how to do it. I lived, uh, part of my career, I was living in Alabama and it turns out the house we bought had been owned previously by an operator at the nuclear power station nearby. And, and he had the log, logs up in the attic and I found them. <laughs> We're cleaning the attic okay. and through them. And, and okay, I mean, it was, these guys were paying zero attention to the nuclear power plant. They were having contests, you know, farting contests and, and everything else going on that was kept in the logs. And it was obvious that no one, and, and that's that plant, by the way, um, a gentleman was cold uh, sitting at the control station. So he took a candle down to find out where the cold breeze was, caught the wiring on fire, oh. and they lost control of the power plant because <laughs> of that. That is the type of, that's that's where we have the, the problem with nuclear. It's not that the plants are inherently safe. It's the operators are inherently unsafe. Yes. And we haven't been able to fix that. And we won't be able to fix that. So yeah, and in the, and I think that there's a, a mathematical part of this equation when you talk about um, the parts per million is that you could go to 2100, but there will be the increase at 2050, and there is an increase at 2060. It's not like it just jumps to 2100. So there's a continual increase, and over that time frame, there is climate change happening, and the impacts of them all across the entire timeline. Correct. Okay. So then how do we, so where do we go then if this is the increase? Got windmills, solar, there. Okay. Where we're at right now, if you look at the current data, um, what, they're, what they're building in plants to generate electricity, about 45% is natural gas. And natural gas is much cleaner than coal or oil and much more efficient. So, so the, the, the utility companies are, are, are actually doing the best thing they can. It's about 
um, natural gas, uh, about 35% wind, and the remainder is solar. That's all the new plants that are going in. Oh, and there's, you know, a fraction of a percent nuclear and, you know, whatever might fulfill. But those gentlemen are driven by cost. The people who are actually, the utility companies, are, they, they're concerned with capital cost and operating cost. And, so and these numbers, to, are, these numbers, I'm assuming, are primarily American. So when we're not, yeah. when you take uh, the Chinese spat with the Australians right now, has all this coal, it's coal, they're running off of coal sitting in the harbors off the coast of China, and they have been turning off cities where there's no electricity being generated within China because they don't have enough. So it means that there's a tremendous amount of coal still being burnt all over the world. Maybe at, and probably at higher percentages than we're looking at oh, yes. on these numbers. If you look at worldwide projections, in 2050, we're still going to be 40% coal worldwide. Which is, only which is only 20 years away. Yeah. Or uh, so, 30 years away. Exactly. The problem is severe, and we need to address it. Okay. Well, so what do we replace the natural gas with? Okay. It's nuclear. There's no other shots. Now... It could be fission, which is what they're doing in Idaho, or it could be fusion. And it turns out in the, in the world right now, there's probably a dozen. In the United States, there's six or eight um, privately run fusion companies. Okay, and they are generating small, you know, 10, 20 megawatts. Um, they're not generating, they're developing small uh, 10 to 20 megawatt fusion power plants. And they're getting fairly close. They're doing, they're doing good work. Um, most of this, occasionally they get a government contract, but most of it is private investment. And, and it's, it's Jeff Bezos, it's Bill Gates. I mean, all the, all the big guys are investing in these few small fusion power plants. Because you can imagine if, if one of them has the breakthrough and has a working fusion power plant, can you imagine how many of those they can sell? Oh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm trying to, um, the, he was on LA Law and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He was one of the actors and he was working uh, when I was at the National Space Society conference uh, he had, he was investing in fusion plants and he had one plant that he was working with. So yeah, it's a, it's a big industry if it can be turned over into actually delivering on the promise of fusion. Well, like I said, they're, they're I, I'm impressed. It's in the book. If you do get to that chapter, I'll eventually, I'll eventually book. get to it. I had to talk to you first. Uh, but they're making good progress, and and they're and they're, they're they have efficient, I mean, adequate funding to do this. So, okay. So you're saying that forty percent will still be coal; the rest will have to switch over to nuclear. Well, no, that's the projection, and the projection is because there is no fusion power plants. Mm -hmm. 
if if the if a fusion power plant were available in five years, that projection would change completely. What's your thought? I think we're ten years away from a workable small fusion power plant. Why? Uh, if you look at the progress, and it's been gradual, and I've been tracking this for fifty years. You know, for fifty years, fusion's been twenty years away. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, now I'm sitting here in 2020, and and fusion is is five to six years away. I mean, they're getting they're getting close to the conditions they need. Um, there's been some real smart people involved, some real smart physics involved, and and there's like I say, worldwide there's a, a dozen at least. And in the United States, there's, oh, I can name six or eight that are working the problem, that are making good progress. So, but if it, if it is 20 years away always, and we hit 2050, we've already gone through 30 of the 70 years that you put at the 2100 timeline. Yeah, but remember, it's, this is per pop, per person, and, and the population's increasing. So, it gets it becomes asymptotic near the end um, because the population just keeps going. Okay. So if if we can, yeah, uh, we won't hit a thousand. We may only my best guess um, is that we'll get to around seven hundred. And again, if you if you visit my website, there's a blog that talks about all this. Okay. Well, what is that? What is a key point that I should take out of what you're saying when you say on my blog, is there a specific, not a specific article, what's the content you want me to know about? Uh, it's a blog on global warming. How no, that's I... what I mean. Is there a specific thing that you're, because I'm not going to go look at your blog. I don't tend to do those things. What's the information you want me to know? Well, the inf that's the information I tell you. The, 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 uh, the international uh, uh, committee on global warming whose acronym I forget at the moment, has funded, uh, spent millions funding various organizations to do detailed projections on how global warming is progressing and where we're going to end up. And a lot of those projections are in that blog and show a variety of different assumptions. And I pick out some I think are probably accurate and then show where those, what, what they project. Okay. Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, okay, so how do we, there, there's, there's issues. In other words, it'd be fine if, if we could build all the windmills we need and all the you know, solar panels and all the nuclear power plants, but there are some issues with increasing, like windmills, for instance. Okay, one megawatt windmill requires uh, one metric ton of niobium metal to build the super magnets that power the generators. And so we're starting to get now into the, there's shortage of various materials on earth and, and, and rare earth elements are, are one of those subjects. And the other is platinum group metals. And platinum group metals um, start to enter when we talk about the 
the uh, long haul trucking and shipping and airplanes, uh, especially uh, long haul trucking is gonna switch to hydrogen as a fuel and use fuel cells because the batteries aren't good enough for, you know, to haul heavy loads long distances. Right. Uh, the, the kilowatts per kilogram, you know, chemistry. There's a limit to how active the chemistry can be. And, uh, you know, with lithium, we're just about at the limit. So we're not gonna have an order of magnitude improvement in batteries, for instance. You know, we're talking 20, 30% maybe. But fuel cells are an order of magnitude as far as kilowatts per kilogram. So you can do long haul trucks, you can do short range airplanes. And, and that's a lot of the market out there. That's, they're burning a lot of fossil fuels right now. So to, to, take that, to take that part of the fossil fuel market away, we need platinum group metals. And we need them, you know, like four or 10 times what we can produce if we're gonna replace the world's long haul trucks, for instance. With the new plants they're looking to bring online because of the price and the value of the uh, rare earth metals in certain parts of the world, I know America is looking at and other countries are now that they're at the higher rate. Is it still enough production that would be able to deliver on these uh, long haul or for ocean shipping or any of the other airplanes? Are there, is there enough capacity to be able to fulfill? I think there is, but at what cost? In other words, we, what you do is you mine the richest deposits first, and then you start mining the, the lesser ores. And there's going to be a point at which um, it will be cheaper to take them off the moon than to mine them on, to continue to, to mine the, the lessening ores on Earth. Okay. And, 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 and where that crossover point is, is extremely hard to predict. So what do we do about long haul trucks, ocean shipping aircraft? What do we do? I mean, we're making some transitions with the fuel cell, the hydrogen, they're improving. Uh, Maersk is the largest, uh, they're improving shipbuilding. Maersk is the largest ship holder in the world in terms of uh, capacity. They've gone to 30% more efficient ocean-going vessels, they're, they're adding that capacity on. So what do you suggest we do? Well, I think you're going to see a transition. Um, Long-haul trucks, I think, will jump from diesel to hydrogen fairly quickly. There's already uh, some talk. Uh, there's actually some people out there offering uh, hydrogen-fueled long-haul trucks right now. They haven't been Hydrogen is expensive. Uh, it's about six bucks a kilogram. Uh, and that's another part of the problem is that um, the electrolyzers that turn water into hydrogen also use platinum electrodes, as do the fuel cells. And we rapidly, I mean, within a, year, a few years, um, there will be no more platinum on the market because uh, the truckers can use, you know, four or five times what's produced now. 
So no one else is going to be able to compete. That's going to drive the price up. And then again, we're going to get to a point not too far in the future where it's cheaper to get the platinum off the moon than it is to continue to, to drive these mines two miles down in South Africa. I did some research on this because of with Project Moonhut, platinum came up and it takes 62 million tons of dirt that has to be moved, which is 62 million Toyota Corollas. That's kind of the analogy that I put into it to dig up about 90 some odd tons of platinum, which is an unbelievable number if you try to fathom that. 62 million Toyota Corollas to get the 92 tons. And I didn't do the math, but I, I ran a rock quarry when I was younger. I was assistant supervisor to one of the largest plants that fed New York City. And the uh, a semi, an American style semi, would be uh, you'd need about four of them using stone as compared to platinum as a weight. You'd need about four of them, and that would hold 92, uh, the amount of tonnage we get out of the earth an entire year, which is amazing how little it is. Yeah. So in, in effect, we're in violent agreement here. Yes. I mean, it's, a, it's an astronomical number, and when I brought it down, when we would have trucks going out, semis going out with a crusher run or a stone composite, it's to only have four trucks at the end of 62 million tons of dirt. But it also shows how valuable this little bit of platinum is to our world because it's in so many of the pieces of the electronics and so many of the tools that we use, which I include an aircraft or shipping vessel to be able to survive on this planet as we do it today. Well, that's my point is that we need uh, platinum is one of those metals that, that really impacts um, fossil as fuel energy production and usage. It's, it's, it's necessary uh, at least with current technology, it's necessary to generate the hydrogen and also to use it in fuel cells. Now for aircraft and shipping, we'll probably just burn the hydrogen in turbines. It, it makes no sense to, a fuel cell is way more efficient than a turbine, but when you need huge amounts of power, you can't beat a turbine. But isn't, so, is, I'm looking this up, but platinum is all, are also in solar cells. Yes. Okay. So another area where but this- it's a, it's a fairly minor constituent in solar cells. Okay. So to, uh, we're shifting over to hydrogen trucks. What are we doing on ocean shipping and aircraft? Well, that's where we go to hydrogen turbines. We burn the hydrogen in a turbine engine. And, and that's, that's, uh, the, the only issue there is generating the hydrogen. You know, burning hydrogen in a turbine engine is existing technology. Mm -hmm. uh, we were doing that back in the 50s uh, experimentally. But uh, generating the hydrogen, again, we're going to need a lot of platinum group metals. What, explain to me, because I've never, my, my background is organic chemistry, physics, calculus, but we never really talked about 
hydrogen group metals, uh, platinum group metals. What does that, what does that consist of? And, and, and how, what percentages or so give me some more data on what that means. Well, okay. Um, the platinum group metals, let me just look at my notes here. No problem. Uh, Ruthenium, rhodium, palladium, osmium, iridium, and platinum. Okay. And they're often, and, and the reason I'm knowledgeable on them, and I was working, uh, nickel iron asteroidal material contains 100 to 200 parts per million uh, ceratophiles, and those are, are iron loving metals. And they're dissolved in the nickel iron that you find in, in asteroids and, and meteorites. And what you do, for instance, on the moon is you collect, and it's the regolith on the moon is, is a mix of everything. It's kind of like a dog's breakfast. Okay. You got everything there, but you can go out and essentially scoop up and run through a, a, a separator and pull out because the nickel iron is highly magnetic. You can pull out all the, the good stuff very simply and put the rest of it back. And while you're at it, you can heat that the regolith that you're processing and drive out the gases, which is hydrogen, you know, uh, some water vapor, uh, a little bit of nitrogen, helium, including helium three, which is a fusion fuel. So you essentially build these devices on the moon. And again, look in the book. Um, and they go around and, and, and mine acres of, of regolith, okay, a week, and separate out all the good stuff. And it's just a continuous processor. It moves slowly and picks up the regolith, um, treats it, collects the good parts, and dumps the rest out the back. The, the way I was first described uh, or introduced to platinum on the moon was that when I sat at my first meeting ever in NASA, my first real orientation to space, uh, Bruce Pittman at the space portal in Ames had said to me, do you know where platinum comes from? And my ignorance, I said, comes from the ground. And he said, no, actually, platinum comes from asteroids. It's not indigenous to Earth. And then his second question was, when you look at the moon, what do you see? And I uh, didn't, you know, there's asteroids all over. And, and he, so the, the connection was that the moon is full of platinum. And one of the research pieces, maybe you could tell me if I'm right or wrong, is there are two types of asteroids. There are a few different types, but let's say there's um, organic and then there's metals. And for every 1,000 1, asteroids that have hit the moon, there have been millions, three of them have more platinum in them than each than we've used in the history of mankind. So the reason I bring that up is you're saying it's also in the regolith, which I'm trying to get my mind around because I had always thought, I mean, I can know that it'll disperse itself, but you're saying it's actually in the regolith itself. It's mixed in. It's like, it's not a soil, but it's like a composite of a soil or is it built baked into the regolith? No, it's, you, you were right. You know, uh, 
we call them metallic asteroids and, and several metallic asteroids have impacted the moon. And there's one up there in Mare Ibrium, which is, you, if you look at the moon, it's the upper left-hand corner. And it, it, you know, caused a huge crater and broke up and pieces of it are scattered all over the place. And that's where, so there's, there's large pieces and there's small pieces. And of course the small pieces scattered especially far. So if you pick up a, a cubic yard or regolith, you will find chunks and in, in, in little teeny bits. You know, the, the moon's been pulverized by billions of years of, of asteroids hitting it, big ones and little ones. So the upper six meters or so is pulverized. Uh -huh. and, and all these all that iron has been dispersed because it's been hit by something and broken up and tossed. So it's just, it's well dispersed, but it's in that general area, it's fairly intensive. So when the, when you say small and big, how big was Meridian? Merid, how do you say Meridian? Oh, it's about 800 kilometers across. Okay. And the size of this asteroid that hit, do we oh, have any knowledge? Yeah. Uh, there's probably some estimates somewhere, but if it cost a crater 600 meters, 600 kilometers across, you can bet it wasn't small. No. <laughs> okay. So the, so in theory, we could set up a mining operation or a, it's not actually a mining, it's a separation facilities across this region and be able to dig up and find the, uh, this platinum group series in enough concentration, as well as the other hydrogen, rarer, uh, the uh, helium-3, we could be able to separate out and be able to add a, bring that material back to Earth, is what you're suggesting, to be able to fuel or give the technology necessary to run trucks, ocean shipping, aircraft, and, and the types of energy needs we have. Yeah, and, and the point is, is that we could probably do it cheaper than trying to generate that much platinum here on earth because we the okay south africa was hit by a metallic asteroid a long time ago and all the platinum on earth sunk to the core you know four and a half billion years ago when we were molten so the only platinum you can find in the crust is asteroid impacts way back when yeah after the after the crust hardened and and so it's limited and it's getting damn hard to find so the i i heard that there was or i read i don't remember which i like to hear a lot it we had the south african i also heard there's a there's one in canada that's extremely large it's also hit and russia is the other or that in the russian area there tends to be another large and those are the primary three sets of asteroids that can deliver on the promise of the platinum as of now there are others but those are the three is am i correct am i, I off I, I do believe you're correct okay so the it's becoming more and more difficult in south africa how much does it cost to pull up in south africa uh well the, okay platinum's currently going for uh, what about a thousand dollars a gram i think the current price thereabouts 
Okay. And and the, if you look at the normal mining to sales cost, okay, is around 80%. So it's probably costing them $800 an ounce to mine it. Yeah, platinum price per ounce uh, today is $1,092. Okay. Per gram, per gram is 35.1. No I, argument. Okay. So you're saying that it's 80% of it to be able to extract that. So even if the, but if the price goes up, doesn't it gives a higher uh, margin, but it's still that price. Yeah. And, and the price has been there for a long time, which is what, I, what I'm, that's what I'm basing the 80% on is that uh, the, the suppliable if, if the, you know, if the, if it costs more to mine it than they can sell it for the, 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 you can't buy it. You just can't find it. They, they stop mining it. Right. So that's where I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about on an average $800 an ounce. Okay. And what would it cost uh, or how do you look at it when you look at the moon? How do you do the math? Okay. Now we're getting, uh, I, uh, taught a class at the University of Washington, uh, a space senior space design class back in 2012. And we picked the topic of mining the moon as that was a, for, this was uh, 26 uh, Arrow and Astro seniors. Uh, and that was an excellent, they did a fantastic job. And they went in with my help in places and developed a system to mine and get it back. Okay. The, and what the driving, what drove the cost was the cost to get a kilogram in the low earth orbit. Okay. That's what drove the overall program cost. Okay. Now in 2012, the cost of, of, uh, uh, platinum was about, $25,000 a kilogram. Yep. And we assumed that we could sell it at half that cost and make, and, and so that's what we assumed. And we had a return on investment at that price of 37, 38% return on investment. Uh, but we were assuming $600 a kilogram to get stuff into low earth orbit. SpaceX spaceship, which is, you know, in development, I've run numbers there and, and they're gonna be able to deliver it for $100 a kilogram. What about the cost of setting up the mining facility? Remember I was in the, in the uh, we were dropping 22,000 ton of stone a day and we had very, very, very big equipment, very heavy equipment. And what about the cost of setting up the mining operations in space? So getting it there, establishing it, supplying food, shelter, and all of the other life support components to be able to deliver. How do you amateurize, amateurize that into the equation? Well, we had a, a five-year development, we, again, what we assumed was, um, is that this was an international effort and there was money set aside 
And we assumed it cost $18 billion mm -hmm. over five years to design, build, and test the mining equipment and the, the delivery system and all that. And that was based on tools that I had been using in my career. In other words, these are proven tools, proven est cost estimation tools. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem off just off my first numbers because the numbers that I, we've been extrapolating is but to, to be able to facilitate a lot of the activities on the moon, the numbers are 170 billion to 270 billion, depending on what's being achieved to be able to get some of these activities going on the moon. So to take 18 billion to do mining is not that is not far off. Well, this the we generated a paper at the end, and that paper's been downloaded and read hundreds of times. And and no one has gotten back to us to argue with our numbers. So do you, do you, is this remote mining? Is this human? It's remote, but we included uh, a, a manned uh, facility for maintenance. The, it was all, we can teleoperate on the moon. Mm -hmm. okay. It doesn't need to be a robot. It can be teleoperated. Uh, and these are fairly simple systems. Um, they're complicated, but that the, the, they don't do. I mean, you know, uh, a bucket wheel grabbing regolith is not really, really complicated. The when I was, I'm uh, who was I with? I was Daniel Faber. I was with Daniel Faber in my early stages of the space project Moon Hut, and. I had mentioned something about mining on the moon and the first reaction he had was we don't even know if we can mine on the moon. We have never dug onto the moon on the moon. And I thought that was an interesting reaction. He says, we've gone a little bit down, but we've never really done full mining. Another individual I spoke to said, uh, we use resistance on earth. We use gravity and resistance on earth to be able to mine or to dig or to do any type of digging. And this individual is in the architectural space said to me, well, what happens when you push a shovel on earth? You use your force to drive down. She said, I ask engineers all the time. So what is the resistance when we're digging on the moon? And unless the equipment is heavy enough, we might not be able to mine on the moon. What's your thought? I, I think that's a very valid question. And like I said, uh, we researched lots and lots of data to figure out, could we mine on the moon? And if you look at the dynamics of a bucket wheel, okay, once, if you have a, once so you have uh, a just, hole, just for the Just for the sake of clarity, a bucket wheel to you is? Uh, Oh, it's kind of like a, 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 a water wheel with buckets. And okay, this so, rotates and the buckets scoop and then come over the top and dump. 
Okay, so you've got this wheel where there are 20 buckets on it. It comes down, it picks up some dirt, brings it up, and at the top of it, it drops it into either a transport, any some, some type of transportation or belting system so that the material is then brought to a uh, the, the, the separation stages. Correct. Correct. Okay. It's, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it it gets a little complicated because we're trying to do a lot of things with the ore, but I, we don't need to get into that. Level. Right. It's just, it's still so, the concept so the question, of, go ahead. Your question is, is will the bucket wheel work? And in my opinion, my personal opinion is we may have to blow with using explosives with a drill and explosives, dig a hole to begin with. So there's an edge for the bucket wheel to start with. Okay. So, what we, or, or, and I don't mean iron ore, but or, we explode and then drop the legs or the part of the equipment down deep enough, refill it back in, and that becomes the gravitational, that becomes the force, the, the, uh, the resistance so that the bucket wheel can hold and maintain and dig. Yeah, well, the the way I saw it was is that the, this device is on, you know, treads, tractor treads, and it moves forward. And when it's operating, it has a lot of regolith on board. So it's not, we delivered it weighs less than uh, 15 tons. But when it's operating, it probably weighs 80 tons. Because the, yeah, it's full of the because material. Because it's full of regolith. Is regolith heavy? Um, it's about the, it's a, let's see, about the consistency, a little less than aluminum, I think. Uh, well, uh, so <laughs> yeah, you, you look at it from a scientific perspective. I'm looking at it as aluminum foil and aluminum is very light oh. just because we come from different worlds. You're looking at it as material. And yes, if you saw aluminum in it's in the, in a factory on a wheel, it's extremely heavy. And it's then processed down to lighter and lighter and thinner and thinner material. So would, uh, okay. Well, think of it as, is a little lighter than aluminum BBs yep. that you're trying to scoop. But you're getting enough of it to be able to fill it up with 80, 80 ton in the wheel at a time. So yeah. it's generating its own downward force to be able to keep it solid enough to be able to dig. That's correct. Okay. And the energy to run one of these? Uh, okay. We patterned our device after um, a, a several studies done by the University of Wisconsin, who have um, spent uh, several graduate careers developing a device to mine the lunar regolith. Well, we, we took their device, which was powered by uh, a beam solar, and put a small nuclear reactor in it. We, okay, in, in our, our class, we contacted the Idaho nuclear facility, and they helped us put together um, small nuclear reactor designs and costs. So that's what we based a lot of our power on where these, the, the Idaho National Laboratory uh, designs for small nuclear 
reactors. So we had a 25 megawatt nuclear reactor on board our miner. And it was unmanned and I wouldn't recommend putting people on it. The, it's very easy to take our, where we live on earth and then translate it to, to spaces to be equivalent. Yet there's zero atmosphere and or very minimal atmosphere on the moon and there's minimal uh, gravity, one six gravity. So the, an explosion, if it did happen on the moon would not be the same as an explosion on earth, correct? Correct. What would happen if there was an explosion on the moon of a 25 megaton, megawatt well, 25 reactor. megawatt, yeah. first of all, reactors don't explode, they melt. Oh, okay. Okay, so it'd be a, a, a puddle. Okay, and, and I get it. Uh, have you been to NASA in San Francisco and seen the regolith pit? Or I've, I'm assuming you've seen regolith pits? Yes. They're neat because the material to me is, it's, it's more like a coating than it is dirt. So the bucket, so what, what technology are you leaning towards? The explosion of it, or we don't know, or the, uh, the scooper being able to pick it up? Which one do you think is going to be the one that's most probably going to work? Well, the regolith is, is you know, it's, uh, it's essentially fractured. Most of it's fractured basalt. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the problem is uh, air is a pretty good insulator. And so electrically, all those small teeny particles stick together real well. Yes. And, and the regolith, most of the regolith is, 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 you know, sub millimeter size. I mean, it's almost micron size dust. So there's no reason. I mean, if you look at the photos of the astronauts, um, they were able to pick stuff up and, and pick up samples of, of soil. It wasn't, you know, it, it had the characteristics of dirt. It's just, it's, it's stickier. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so I, I now see the, the, the bucket uh, loader on there. Can you, I had a conversation just recently with somebody who, uh, when I think about space, because I am not a space person, I'm trying to be pragmatic. I'm trying to be real in, in timelines and thinking only because I don't know enough. And I run into people in the space industry who give me timelines that if they had to bet their life on them, they would all die. And I recently had a guy on the phone. We were talking about Project Moon Hut, and they were looking to get involved. And I said, we try to be pragmatic. I don't believe that within seven years, we'll have 50,000 people floating in a space or Orion type of floating capsule with gravitational 50,000 people living there within seven years. And there are people out there promoting these type of things. When uh, my question to you is, if you were to give me and, and your life depended on it only because I really want to know if we were to put a pragmatic timeline to this, a, a realistic timeline, mean we have to get to the moon 
the first rockets that where people might live or machinery is there that can land and and we have to bring this equipment this uh how many tons did you say you said 15 ton piece of equipment plus other equipment and then we have to operate it and we have to be able to send things back if you were to kind of give me a timeline of what you're thinking so that myself and i'm going to say which i normally don't get into is the listeners are going to be able to say that sounds kind of real. And I'd like to be able to say that. How would you take 2021 and push me forward into creating this ecosystem or this uh, economic system, earth and space receiving, shipping, doing? How would you lay that out? Okay, well, the way I would start is, is uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like Buck Rogers, okay? Um, without the bucks, there is no Buck Rogers. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and this is all driven by money. Yeah. And need. Okay. Elon Musk is going to put Starship in orbit. Mm-hmm. Now he thinks he's going to do it in two years. I'll give him four to five. Okay. Once you, we have low cost access to low Earth orbit, Okay, then it becomes very economical to put space stations, tourist hotels, and huge uh, test facilities in low Earth orbit. And, and that's a real economic driver. Mm-hmm. You can make very good money doing that if you have low cost access to low Earth orbit. And is, is there a number that when you think of, when you think of low cost access? Well, like I said, if studies that I was involved in 30 years ago or 20 years ago uh, said that if you can get down to 250, you can make all that work and make good money. Well, Elon is all, if I look at and analyze Starship, I get $100 a kilogram and he still makes money. Okay, uh, just so, making so at a hundred hundred dollars a kilogram. I had I had a uh, person from Italy on the phone today, part of the team that we're working on, and we talked about cost. And I said, take a wild guess how much it costs to send an individual up to the International Space Station. And she had no clue. I says, is it three million? Is it seven million? Is it twenty million? And I said, the range, and you probably know more than I do, is somewhere in the neighborhood of it could be anywhere from 50 to 80 million to put someone into the International Space Station to stay for their period of time and bring them back. And she had no clue. So that's why I'm asking this question. If we're talking about space station and tourist hotels is if we're at 100 kilograms, that's the number you think if we stay there, that we can get this low earth orbit access and that can be the driver for phase, I'm going to call it phase two. Is that what you're saying? I I think it's really phase one. In other words, we we have to to get down to $100 a kilogram, you need a lot of traffic. You need to fly often. Okay. And, And you will fly often because, well, you know, if a tourist can go to low earth orbit and spend two weeks for $50,000, okay, yep. which is reasonable at $100 a kilogram. 
um, there will be traffic you won't believe. Oh yeah, the, I mean, because yes, yes, the, because people are doing it right now when they do these trips to Balkanor and the things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the the traffic the the launches will be you know a thousand a year, eight hundred to a thousand a year. That drives us down towards the hundred dollars a kilogram level. Okay, and now you can afford. To, to put the to put a program together and and do the financing to go to the moon. So what's the next phase? So we've got we get well, up to I, I figure okay. So 2024 uh, they start flying. Yeah. Assume the tourism starts in 2026. Okay. Okay. By, yep. By 2030, the flight rate should be starting to get pretty reasonable. Yeah which drives the cost down to the, where, where we want it for, for mining. Okay, it's going to take, you know, my guess is eight to 10 years to, 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 to build the equipment, get everything together, get all the approvals and get to the moon. Okay, so now we're we talking about 2035? 2030, let's say 2038 to 20, 20 let's say 2038 we're at now. Okay. Uh, yeah, sounds good. Okay, that would be then we 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 would start mining the moon, and and we we start bringing back the the helium three and the the platinum group metals, and incidentally, and in, in one of the other uh, sahedrophiles is gold, so you might want to bring some of that back too. Yeah, but whatever. Um. And, and when you're including in there is in that time frame from 2021 to 2038, we're going to be able to then also be able to return from the moon using the resources on the moon, including the hydrogen and the oxygen that comes out of uh, the separation of water, whatever it may be, so that we can return. So by 2038, and I'm not holding, it's, you're not going to dive by well, making this estimation, but by 2038, you believe that we can start to address this challenge of Earth-based challenges of uh, the long-haul truckers, the ocean chipping, the aircraft, and everything else. Yeah. Now, actually, I don't think we need the, the, uh, the hydrogen on the moon to come back. Uh, you're aware of um, David and Goliath, right? What you can my, do with a sling? My, my, my name is David. So in my okay. lifetime, I've heard that multiple times. <laughs> okay. Well, it turns out you can mount a sling on the surface of the moon and throw capsules back to Earth and put them in the South Pacific Ocean or South Indian Ocean where there is no traffic. And periodically stop throwing them when the... Uh, when you know that part of the moon is is in shadow um so there's no solar power and and pick them all up and then when the sun rises again on the earth facing side you start throwing more of them so the, all that takes is a little electrical power okay so okay yeah I've, this is the first time <laughs> you've got me my 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 ears went up i'm i'm a dog my ears went up. I've never heard. I know about the, the ability to throw and, and the gravity allows you to escape the, uh, the moon's gravitational pull. But I, no one has ever said in all these 
six years I've been involved, seven years in space, no one's ever talked about throwing these capsules. So what's the catapult look like? And what size would these capsules be? And anything else that we know about this? Uh, okay, the catapult is, uh, the arms are, I'll say 100 to 200 meters long. Uh, they're not, it's not rope, it's, it's probably metallic or car carbon fiber. Um, and the capsules would weigh oh, half a ton to a ton. And they're built from, uh, remember we mined the, the, we mined nickel iron uh, to, to get to the platinum. Yep. So we use the nickel iron to build the shell and part of the, part of the, the facilities is making oxygen for rockets. Uh, and the byproduct is rutile, which is a titanium oxide, which is an excellent, excellent insulator. So these capsules are built on the moon um, and thrown to earth and then re they're, they're, they're designed so they float. Uh -huh. And there's a little, little tracker on them. And uh, so then you recover them and, uh, and recycle, you know, you have, you get some nickel iron along with all the platinum and gold. Right. Yes. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of iron ore on the moon. There's all sorts. Of, and one of the things we could have every building, on, we can have every bridge on earth made of stainless steel if we wanted to, with all the things that we could bring back. You got it. So, so we, we shoot these capsules how are we sure that they're safe going through low Earth atmosphere with all of the satellites and the traffic that might be established by this time frame of 2030 with all these floating tourist hotels and everything else? Will we have boosters on them? Will we have wings on them? Will, will they no. be yes to all of them or no? No, they're, 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 St statically stable they're thrown into the south indian ocean where there is absolutely no traffic no I, there's no traffic even in space well um because you have you have asteroids you have you have satellites going around the earth you have these there, hotels there is, going around the earth there is traffic but if you run the if you run the numbers they're they're at the altitude where the traffic is for such a short time that the chances of collision are, are very small. Okay, so so hauling something at Earth is an okay thing, and we we shoot these capsules. I, I guess I guess the part of it in my head is I see a lot of them, but you might be thinking we send one a day or two a day or one every week, or is are you thinking when you see twenty thirty eight and it's starting? Are we shooting 10 capsules per year, per day at the Earth? Well, it depends. Okay, we, we want to return. The platinum doesn't do us any good on the moon. Right. Okay, and, and we're talking um, in the time frame we're talking around, uh, we're probably talking 4,000 tons a year we want to return to Earth of the platinum. Mm -hmm. So we're probably talking um, 20,000 capsules a year. And, and the, 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 that's not a problem. We can easily do that. Okay, so 
I, okay. No, I could, I could see that we could do it. I just had not thought of, I was, again, being naive. I was thinking that we'd have some type of space logistics where the, there would be a vessel or vehicle, a rocket or something that would launch off. It would bring it to low earth orbit and then brought down in some way. But you're just saying, heave ho and and let these babies fly well this is a company we want to make money no i understand that i just never had thought i mean i've, I've heard of a lot of ideas i this is an interesting if there is a, it, it's it's in the book david no 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 but i it, i'm not i probably won't finish the book the the space is not it's, i have a lot of other things that i like to read um i'm trying to the only one real book that I read years ago was uh, on space gave me some of the orientation. It's, it's a very technical book and there are a lot of things. And I'm glad that I have a, the, my background that I do, because for me, it was a little challenging to grasp some of the, as quickly as it's thrown at me, some of the concepts in it. So this it's throwing the via it's throwing it at how fast do these suckers go? I mean, they gotta be hauling. Yeah, they're about 2.2 kilometers a second. And do they slow down? Oh yeah, the Earth, the, the Moon's gravity slows them down. But when they're when they get to Earth, okay, yeah. uh, they're traveling about seven and a half kilometers a second. And it'll send up a lot of water. No, 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 no. <laughs> they slow down to, uh, you know. Um, 100 kilometers an hour or so when they when they splash. Okay. In other words, they're designed to slow down. They're, they're purposely blunt. Okay, so that's a hundred kilometers per hour is, uh, is a lot better. Now, for uh, uh, for those of you who are listening in, if you're not if you're American or you're used to miles per hour, when you drive in Europe, you might be traveling at 90 kilometers per hour, which I don't know what the exact orientation is, but I know when I was driving in Europe, I'd be 80 to 90 kilometers per hour. And that's a reasonable speed, like a 60 to 70 miles per hour in the United States. Someone can look up the numbers. So it's not that high to say 100 kilometers per hour. It's not really that fast. Right. Okay. Yeah, we don't want to break it when it hits the water. I, I didn't, didn't think of a breaking. I think of this solid rock being tossed at the at the earth. Okay. So, and the and the cost that you that the numbers came back was fifteen billion dollars or eighteen billion dollars to be able to build this infrastructure system. And you are you including by twenty thirty eight humans participating in this for maintenance, or are you assuming at this point we still are robotic? Okay. Uh, in the class, we assumed we were in 2012, we assumed we needed people to do maintenance. I, I'm sure you're aware that moon dust is extremely abrasive. Yes. Okay. So you got to expect things to break. And it's so, also, it also gets into all the joints and all the mechanisms. It's a, it's, it's like a, it's one of the challenges of the astronauts was not just being on the moon, but these particles would get into areas, their lungs were one of them, but would get into the, I'm going to say outfit, I can't think of it, the uh, spacesuit, and it would, it would bind up the joints, correct? Exactly. Now, 
okay, in 2019, when I wrote the book, okay, I revised the 2012 approach, assuming that we could teleoperate and have robotics available in 2020. So we didn't need to send the people. And, and we as we be, get yeah. further along the line here of 2038, probably even less probably we need people. Absolutely, because the, the robotic uh, exponential curve is, is in the works tied with artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, tied with 3D printing and its own ability to being able to make parts on the moon would all be able to facilitate creating or solving or fixing whatever happens up there. Exactly. So by so we're 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 also assuming that long haul trucking, ocean shipping, and aircraft because I'm still kind of there playing down on the list that you gave, is that they will maintain or keep the need for platinum or the rare earth metals that are capable of being used in in a in a higher degree because we're going up to four thousand tons a year as compared to ninety two tons per year. We're assuming that there'll be an exponential growth need in the electronics and in any, uh, and this tech or battery tech, um, energy tech that would need this type of growth curve. As, as far as we can predict now, yes. Is anybody actually building this? Uh, yeah, there, there. You can go buy a hydrogen fuel cell truck right now. You might have a problem getting hydrogen. No, I meant our. Is anybody? Uh, Project Moon Hut has its four phase development. It has all the pieces in it. We're talking to people about creating feasibility studies and and showing and putting together. You've got a feasibility study done by the students. Is anybody today on Earth saying this is exactly what we're going to build? I don't think so, and I wouldn't condone it until, you know, until Starship flies. Uh, right now, at current prices, it makes no sense. You know, price the cost to, to orbit. So until we have something cheap to orbit, it makes no sense to start making serious plans. Well, that's why we have Project Moonhot. Come on. I mean, well, that's what, that's I, I've been head. trying to get, I have been pushing low cost to orbit reusable rocket systems for nigh on 40 years, David, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not there yet. I understand. Uh, hopefully I won't have to wait so long because I, I'd probably get tired of all this stuff. So uh, when we, anything to add to the long haul trucking, the shipping or any other in the, your, that line, that category there, is there anything else you'd like to add well, that adds to this? I think, okay, helium three from the moon really helps fusion. The reason is, is if you look at the reactions, the current fusion fuel cycle is deuterium tritium. And that's, that's, that's uh, essentially uh, heavy hydrogen with heavier hydrogen. Um, and, and the problem with that reaction is it releases a 14.1 megavolt neutron every time you get a, a fusion. Okay. And, and that is hard to stop. 
you, ha you have to have heavy shielding and that shielding becomes radioactive. Now, if you use deuterium helium three as fuel, what you get is helium plus a proton. And the proton interacts with the magnetic field, never makes it to the, you don't need a shield, shielding wall. Yeah. Doesn't generate radioactivity and makes the fact then you can make a much smaller, cheaper reactor. And remember, smaller, cheaper is where we want to go. So what's a, what's there, a reactor costing today? Even the small, the small micro reactors. Who knows? No one's built one. The one that they're testing. What are they? Oh, uh, good question. I wish I could answer it. Okay. Uh, a, an old-fashioned nuclear reactor cost? Uh, reactors are currently running um, four to $5,000 a kilowatt electric. That's to build a plant. So a total cost, if you were to take a okay. wild range? Okay, if you, were, if you were doing a, say, a 10 megawatt system, uh, you're talking what? Uh, Ten thousand times uh, four thousand. Yep. So what about forty billion? Yeah. So, so what you are the way I'm kind of visualizing this because I, as you know, I take notes and I draw, is that what you're saying is we get to this twenty thirty eight timeline, and at twenty thirty eight we actually see multiple things happening. Uh, we have the we have our first shipments coming back, which allows us to be able to expand the use of platinum in multiple areas. So not only are we talking the ability to lo do long haul trucking, we do ocean shipping, we do aircraft, but we also have the capacity to, to modify other electronics because now the cost of platinum has dropped significantly and and availability is there the age of infinite, infinite possibilities, infinite resources. So we now have the ability like aluminum, which was $800 an ounce back when it was first created and now or $900. And now it's in our mobile phone or in our laptop. So we have other implications from having it, not only the transportation side of it, but we have other electronics. And what you're also saying is at the same time, because we're doing the separation, the separation, we're getting some other spin-offs. So there's value added in multiple areas. And another one is the helium three, correct? Correct. And that allows us to be able to create a low cost reactor, fusion reactor that is no longer radioactive and as dangerous as the existing technology we have today, which is okay. That's just what it is. Well, what spin-offs? That means we, we can replace I'm sorry. David. No, no, you're right. That Go means ahead. that means we can replace the the natural gas we've been burning all this time. Okay, so we can replace natural we, gas, we, and then we don't have any coal being used. And okay, what else comes out of this 2038 date of well, the materials coming back? Um, that's about it. I mean, that's the 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 the. Uh, purpose of the this exercise I've been working on that I'm telling you about yeah was to um, try to not visit the Cretaceous again okay 
to, to drop. It, it does still leave the carbon emissions in the air and there will be a, a, a drag of by the time it gets implemented, let's say 2038. So we're going 2038 to 20, 2068, giving 30 years for the world to catch up with this. Is there any technology uh, that you see in terms of cleaning the air or that come out of this? Well, this, the whole purpose of this was to get rid of the fossil fuels. And, and the first step is to replace all the coal and, coal and oil with natural gas, yep. which burns much, much cheaper, but it's cleaner. It's both cheaper and cleaner, which is why no one is building coal plants anymore, except in the third world in China. And China, if China had natural gas resources, they would be. They would definitely use it too. Yeah. It's. So, I, I worked with the in the coal somewhat industry, and not in the industry, but I spoke to them about certain types of technologies and worked with them some. And the in the United States, we have sulfur, high sulfur coal. We have cleaner coal. And we're actually shipping, we're still mining the sulfur coal, but we used to in the past decade, we used to ship our high sulfur coal to China. China would burn it and it flows back over to the United States. Yep. So the high sulfur, the, the good coal, which was created in the north of the United States, but the high sulfur coal, which was down in the Tennessee Valley, is the Tennessee Valley shipped it and then you'd have to transport all of this coal from the northern part of the United States down to the Tennessee Valley for them to be able to burn it, which is kind of a, if you think about it, a really odd way of trying to maintain coal. The reason I, I asked that question, so let me give you a, a feeder to, do you see anything else, is when I started to talk about, um, you have air. Oh, I would say in the beginning of Project Moon, I haven't said this in a long time, is that a lot of the technology we're creating for doing what you did bring up in the very beginning, which was the removing the CO2 from the atmosphere. One of the challenges is the cost. So now you can use the energy created by these this cheaper energy source, whether it be uh, solar power, uh, ready back to earth or platinum that's now on earth to be able to reduce costs or these nuclear facilities. Now it's cheaper to run air cleaning systems and water filtration systems, which are highly uh, desalination plants. And that actually will help to drive down other environmental challenges and clean the air at the same time. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's why I was asking, have, since you've come up with this, did you, think, did you add this equation? My biggest one was we have technology to clean the air or to take out the CO2. One of the challenges, it's costly. It's energy intensive. But if we can drop the cost of energy, we could then turn them on. The problem I have with that is we can build the nuclear power plants because people will buy the electricity. Yeah. Okay, who's buying the CO2 we're removing from the air? 
I don't know. Maybe at that point there'll be credits for it. Maybe there'll be a, a or even countries in and of themselves, because there, it's twenty, we're twenty forty already. We've already seen some more climate activity. Maybe countries themselves put in place. I'm going to call it a CO two scrubber, whatever the name may be. But maybe the society as a whole, on an impact level, sees the threat. And around the world, there are countries who are willing to put in these just for the purposes of making sure that there is a, a better tomorrow. Yeah, the, the problem is, is that 80% of the fossil, you know, the, the carbon put in the atmosphere is put in not by the, you know, the US and Europe, the people who can afford to buy the scrubbers, we're not the problem. Okay. The, it doesn't matter if we're the problem, we're impacted by it. And to, it's for, for the people listening today, I'm just bringing it up because no one knows when these interviews are done. I never say the date and it's not intentional. I just never thought of setting the date. It is, it is right after the insurrection in the United States. Historically, we, Having lived in Asia for the past 10 years in Hong Kong and Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, and all these countries and seeing what's happening, what will happen in the next 30 years within the Asia Pacific region and Asia, in my opinion, will be unbelievable compared to what we have seen in the past. Korea has absolutely become a phenomenal environment as compared to 30 years ago, Bangladesh might be on the same tracks and many other countries in the region. So in 30 years, the world may be a very different place, even including China. If we were to use that as the one scapegoat for the world, I think that we could see a more unified approach to solving this. So that's why in my in my formulaic component is that maybe the world knows that they need to do this and there's enough, uh, maybe it's put into, maybe, just throwing this up, maybe the cars that people use have built into it little tiny carbon filtration systems. So as you drive your car, you are cleaning. As you do certain functionality, you're cleaning. It might just, just be plants. It might be because of this platinum that we've brought back, we've got this. Does, does that make sense? It's possible. I'm not, again, I'm, I think it's more likely that we will add something to jet fuel and drop the temperature by okay. increasing the cloud layer. Okay. Makes sense. So it's uh, cheaper. It, it, yes. And the, the number of flights in the air uh, would be able to facilitate that. So I hadn't thought about it from that angle. Uh, so we've got the, the long haul, the trucking, the ocean. Is there anything else to add to that line of trucking, ocean shipping, aircraft? Um, well, there, there are two other large contributors to CO2 in the atmosphere. Okay. Uh, one is iron making and the other is concrete. Yeah, I was going to say cement. Cement. Yeah. And the, there is a, a process being tested that removes the oxygen from iron ore uh, electrically, elect using electrolysis. Uh, and that I think, and these are two major contributors. I mean, we're talking, you know, 
uh, millions of tons a year yeah, I, of, I, of carbon dioxide. I so don't know what I the think, number it is, but it's huge. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and there's also a, a, a process, um, I believe using, uh, it's a process to, to remove the CO2 from the concrete before it uh, hardens. And, and I, I've read about it, but I'm blanking out on it right now. So there's, a, there's potential there. There is work being done, testing that looks pretty interesting. And even the replacement of some of the materials within cement has being, is being looked at. But I just looked at the number. 8% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions come from, it's estimated, from cement. Yeah, so it's, it's obviously, you know, we're, you know, the U.S. does about 10% of the, of the world's emissions. So if it's 8% versus 10% is huge. Mm-hmm. And it, these numbers, when you take them to the size of the planet, are huge, huge numbers. Okay, so the making of uh, iron ore and cements and the applications, or even the new materials that might come about in the next 20 years or 30 years could do some replacement. Uh, Anything else to the long haul, to that one category? Well, okay, I don't, no, I don't think so. Uh, Automobiles, obviously, we're going batteries. Um, I drive drive an electric car, so I'm, I'm very familiar with the ins and outs of batteries. Um, batteries are getting cheaper. They will continue to get cheaper. And that's all, you know, my electric car requires no maintenance. I mean, zip. It's much cheaper to operate than, you know, my wife has a hybrid. Okay. And, and, you know, she's, she's looking at, you know, seven, eight cents a mile. I'm looking at, at 1.3 cents a mile. Okay. Tremendous difference. So once batteries become a little cheaper, so you can buy an electric car cheaper than you can buy a gas car, I would assume that, that you know, gas cars are going to disappear. Well, the, the other data point, and this is not going to be accurate, it's just to give a reference that a, a car has 5,000 moving parts, where a battery vehicle has something like the main parts are like 25. And again, don't hold me on these exact figures. I'm throwing it out. And that one of the things that you have to do is change the batteries. I mean, change the brakes ever at a hundred thousand miles as compared to all of the maintenance that has to go on with a typical vehicle. The, the challenge that the one thing I do and like your opinion on it when it comes to the batteries and hopefully we'll come up with something that's far superior is that the batteries will do leak and they leach into water systems and creeks and all of that. How uh, when it comes to using space, because the topic is the resources in space, do you see of anything that would be able to mitigate the challenges that we have with battery technology today? Two things. First of all, uh, obviously we need to recycle batteries. And, and I'm surprised that technology is not here already. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is there is something better than a battery. It's called a flywheel. And the technology for flywheels um, you could build a flywheel-powered airplane 
In other words, you get that order of magnitude, uh, kilowatt hours per kilogram with a high technology flywheel. Can you explain the flywheel, please? Because I, I know about it, but I don't know about it. Well, it, essentially you take a, a mass and you spin it mm -hmm. and it's, you, it's in a vacuum and it's have magnetic bearings. So there's almost no drag and the electric, there's an electric motor part of the flywheel. So you can spin it up and also pull power out of it. Okay. And with modern technology materials, okay, you can get an order of magnitude better and, and, you know, kilograms per kilowatt than you can with a battery and flywheels don't wear out. They don't age. They're good forever. Uh, the problem is that that technology that that technology is lying dormant. I mean, it's just not there. It's uh, a, no one's pursuing it. Well, maybe someone will listen and, and start to pursue it a little bit more because the challenge I have, and I want to go back to the flywheel, but the challenge I have with batteries is no matter how many batteries you collect, there will always be somebody who will leave a car with batteries all underneath and they will leave it to degrade in their backyard. It just happens to be the nature of human beings. There's barns that fall down, cars that rust on the side. There will be somebody who will get a cracked battery and that cracked battery will leach into the aquifer that exists below them and damage it. And you don't need a lot to damage an aquifer. So when I think of batteries while they are improving, I do have a fear that this will happen, which is not unlike the fear that individuals have with solar power, is that the solar cells will one day have to be replaced. And today we don't have the tech to be able to separate the uh, rare earth metals, the dangerous toxic metals that were then that, or any chemicals, and they will be shipped off to um, level one countries, countries that have less than a dollar per day as compared to level two, three, or four, and we're in the four category. So the, the challenge with batteries becomes how fast can we find something else in the flywheel I will have to look into. Uh, but no one in your, that any thoughts as to why no one's working on it? Uh, because batteries are right now a lot easier to use. There was, uh, oh, 10 years ago, a serious look at flywheel energy storage, you know, for stationary storage. Mm -hmm. and, and no one, you know, batteries came on board, were popular. Um, I, I do want to make one comment on your, your car out in the backyard thing. Sure. Uh, a busted automobile is worth nothing, literally. A battery... Uh, the chemicals in a battery are still valuable. So the, 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 the guy may haul, may tow the, the, his, his battery car into a place that'll give him money for the battery. Okay. Because he wouldn't do it for a busted automobile. Okay, that's a, a good. So we're hoping that the, the impetus to be able to get the value just like copper or metals or scrap, that this battery will have enough value and the more batteries and the easier and the cheaper they are to produce, the less valuable it will become. But we're hoping that there'll be enough value that they'll still bring it in for whatever currency they can get. 
Yeah, nickel, cobalt, both nickel and cobalt are fairly valuable. So when I when I think of this, I, I, I've actually, I have a diagram that I've drawn and I have batteries on one side and flywheel on the other. And in my head, I go back to 1900. And I go back to the fact that in 1900, there were more electric vehicles on the road than there were uh, the combustion engine. But by the 1915, that number had completely reversed with the, uh, the, the automatic starter as compared to having to crank the shaft. And we have combustion engines because of that split in the road. Is, do, could the flywheel and the battery actually have been be our next mistake that we didn't pursue the one that was more value more environmentally friendly because we made choices for batteries well the back in 1900 the range on a battery automobile could not compete with an internal combustion engine system yes but it's still we still took a path instead of continuing with electric my point is today would be farther along could we be sure. facing that same challenge here that the battery is where we focus, but the flywheel was probably the better option? It's possible. I wouldn't, again, I, I don't have enough data to make that projection. Okay, J- just a question. So uh, let's see, we, the next one, how does space development uh, solve these challenges? Which I think we've kind of, is there anything else to add to that? No, I think we've pretty well covered it. And then the, all the elements we need to harvest on the moon, where found on the moon. So if we take those other two, we've taken the, th- the, the main elements you've given. Is there anything else on the moon besides the helium-3 and the platinum or the, the platinum group? Is there anything else on the moon that you read about or say to yourself, Here's a great opportunity also. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, this is a little further down the line, but there is a, the, the crater Copernicus seems to have a lot of uranium in its regolith. And again, up in that, you know, up in the left upper part of the moon in Meridium, um, there seems to be a lot of thorium. So there's a lot of nuclear fuels on the moon that are in the, in the crust, which makes them readily, you know, in the regolith, makes them readily available. And if Earth doesn't want nuclear power, the moon may love it. If anybody's living on the moon, um, there's advanced spaceships that use nuclear power. You know, they're, they're, they're pulse type like Project Orion. And you could build and operate those ships on the moon and not worry about, you know, the reason that Project Orion never made it on Earth was the fallout. Well, the, Earth, the, the moon atmosphere, I mean, the, 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 just the environment is radioactive. Uh, you need shelter. So um, the, the lunarites or whatever we call them, your, your people in the lunar hut, uh, they might develop nuclear-powered spaceships and develop the rest of the solar system. So when uh, we, I'm assuming you know the name Chaz Diaz? Yes. Um, he, his, uh, what is it called? 
his the interview we had with his um, what's the name of the engine? Uh, it's a Casimir. Uh, yeah, one of the things we talked about was the it couldn't get us out of atmosphere, but in space it needs a tremendous amount of energy. And so what you're suggesting, and I'm tying two pieces together, excuse me if I'm wrong again, is that we could take the energy for this, uh, this engine and we can supply the fuel to be able to fly this engine into space. Well, it probably still isn't enough thrust, but once you're away from the moon, it would do fabulously. But you'd, you'd use some other system to get off the ground, so to speak. The Vassimir engine. That's yeah, what I was the, trying to get, the Vassimir. Yeah, Vassimir. Yeah, so, um, the, so, yeah, so you're saying yes, it would, or am I mixing two you, things? You, you can't, it doesn't develop enough thrust to lift off from the moon. But once you're in orbit around the moon, uh, you could use it to go to, you know, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, wherever. Okay. Uh, quite well. So, and plus, uh, Vesmir probably can use water as propellant. And, uh, you know, water is probably readily available on the moon. So, so that once you, once you have the lunar hut or whatever, you, once you have people on the moon, the, the moon uh, hut. There's lots of resources, and they could they could move out and develop the rest of the solar system. They have everything they need. The 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 Earth ecosystem, Moon and Earth ecosystem, was I, I kind of go back to how do we be able to facilitate doing what we do in space? So I could see the Vassimer engine helping to facilitate potentially just even going between the Moon and Earth, or no? Uh, yes. Very definitely, but not all the way to the lunar surface. You could go from low Earth orbit to low lunar orbit using Vasmir. And that would be, yeah, it would be like a cross stock. You bring your, you bring it up to low Earth orbit, you put it onto the Vasmir engine, uh, onto a vehicle that ships it, goes to near the moon, it cross stocks and brings it down. You got it. Like a, a, a long haul trucker would do. Is that right? That, and, and the, the, the lunar lander that comes up and visits Vasimir in lunar orbit is based on the moon. And again, the, all the propellants you need are readily available with this mining system I talked about. So the, you could support a, a lunar lander at your mining facility. And it would go up and take, you know, supplies up and bring supplies back. So we've got uh, how, from what knowledge we have today, the far side of the moon, similar, do we know the composition? We you were talking about here, thorium and uranium and platinum. Obviously, there'll be platinum on the other side. There'll be these on the other side, on the far side. Are there any, uh, do we know the composition as well as we do know the, the near side? Well, yes. And as it turns out, that most of the valuable minerals are on the near side. Why is that? Uh, we have uh, no, I suspect it'll a very large meteor, I mean, asteroid hit. Uh, we've had uh, satellites in orbit around the moon for many years, looking down uh, using 
uh, neutron scattering and, and gamma rays to measure what's on the surface. And it's been US, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Indians have put these observation uh, satellites in, in polar orbit around the moon. So we have a pretty good set of maps is where the minerals are. And interesting enough, the far richest deposits are on the, on the near side. And you, you've mentioned the north uh, northwest a lot. Well, looking from the Earth. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what the reference is. The Northwest. Any anywhere else that there are higher concentrations, or is if or, or other? God, you know what it's I'm Primarily there. I mean, yes, there are other deposits. Uh, there's a lot of helium three on the the northeast side, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of deposits on the backside. So, so what we're more or less saying that another asteroid hit the moon and gave us these resources. You got it. So even, even Earth for human consumption, uh, Earth and the moon having been hit and struck in the second one, second um, becoming and forming on as the moon, we still are looking at the uh, the metallic and the organic meteors to be this next iteration of um, energy or resources that we should are looking at. It's still the same family of uh, did well, the same thing for both Earth and Moon. You got it. Uh, the the resource these critical resources we're mining were deposited on both bodies by asteroid collisions. And, and we've been we've been using up that supply on Earth, and it's about time maybe to tap the supply on the Moon. Okay. And anything else with uh, where found on the Moon, which was your that, last? No, one. that's uh, again. There are all kinds of maps out there, and uh, you can download them, and you'll see that the that that northwest corner seems to be extremely rich. I will be looking at the northwest corner for the for for now on. I had not known that. So, any other when you're thinking about acquiring the resources and spaces, or any and saving Earth, is there anything else that? Well, I have many friends in in, in the rocket science group and in, in NASA that want to do a solar power satellite and essentially beam the power down from geosynchronous orbit and replace all the electrical power plants. Yeah. And physically that works. The problem is the economics don't work too well. Yeah, we had uh, Strickland. Oh, what's his name? Um, Jim Strickland? Is it Jim? Okay. Yeah. You know, do you know him? I think you would know. It's, I know his name. Yeah. He did one. He did one of our podcasts on space solar power. So you're saying the economics don't work. What's the numbers? Uh, the first, well, the, I was involved this back in 75. Okay. And we did an extensive study and we came up with the first kilowatt was $200 billion. It's the capital cost not the operating cost that gets you. In other words, no utility can afford $200 billion. Right. 
So even though it works, and, and plus the power, the cost of power on Earth has gone down in real dollars by a couple orders of magnitude since we did that study. In other words, technology is getting better all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, so not, but, not the, but not the 200 billion reducing. Well, yeah, they're down to maybe 80 or 100 billion now. And, and once again, it's the cost to get a kilogram to low Earth orbit has been the driver. Now, once, you know, if, Star, if Starship is successful, you can start running the numbers again for solar power satellites and see, see how it comes out. I go to futuristic movies in my head and I think of, okay, it's not, it's not going to be one solution. There'll be multiple solutions. So maybe let's use the same timeline 2038 because we're dropping the cost of energy as you've just described. And for, for localized supply demand, you could be using mini uh, facilities and, and much of what we've spoken about today and at the same time, there could be space solar power delivering simultaneously. So it's not an it's not an and or it's not an a, uh, an or and or, but it's a it's not an or it's an and or. So you could be choosing between multiple forms of um, tech to be able to service your community, depending on where it is, rural versus urban, how much is needed, and so the combination will probably by twenty. 40 will have many more options. Yeah, and, and part of this is that we did a study back in oh, 93. All the, all the major aerospace companies in the United States combined and did a study looking at commercial space transportation study. And we were looking to see, we were looking at, at, at market pull instead of technology push. In other words, if we drop the price Who's going to want to, to use space? And, and it turns out everybody did. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't get the price down. We kept trying. And, and NASA, uh, well, I won't get into this. You know, read the book. Um, not, but, I might not get to it. So tell me. You keep on saying that. Well, NASA kept, we, we tried to, to justify the cost of a reusable single-stage orbit. Mm -hmm. and, and we couldn't make the numbers work. In other words, we could, we, we could if if we got the cost down to where everybody would use space, we couldn't make enough money operating the system, and that was because it cost too much to build the reusable system, and that was an artifact of the tool we were estimating with, which was a NASA tool, and since it was a NASA study, we were kind of, we're going to use their tool, right? So, and. What happened was, is Elon said, Elon said, well, I'm not NASA. Yeah. I'm going to cut some corners. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it the right way. And he did. And he got reusable space working. He got reusable launch systems working. And, and, and there, and there was, re, there were reusable, there was a reusable return to earth rocket. And I think it was Pete Warden spoke about this. In, I might not have shared it on the program, but 
back in, and again, my dates might be off, 1970s, 1980s, there were rockets that would come up, go up, and they could come down, but not in the same scale and capability that we have today and not going all the way up into low Earth orbit. Yeah, and and I know Pete very well, and he and I, have we were involved in some of this. Okay. So yes, you're correct, but they weren't, um, they were, they were studies. Uh, they got, again, they were joint Air Force NASA studies. Um, and, and we were almost there. And then we won the Cold War and all the money dried up. Yeah. And that's where you and I came back to this conversation, is that I'm reading the first few pages of your book. And uh, as I shared with you in our pre-interview, is I don't want to know anything before our call because then the listener cannot learn alongside of me so that we learn together. And I asked the questions that I would ask normally. There's no curse of knowledge. And when I saw that in the night, the, I don't know, was the X something X 15 or whatever it was developed. It was actually dinosaur. Dinosaur. Is that the name of it? Dinosaur. Okay. Where a rocket was developed. That was a, uh, a rocket plane and it could take off and land horizontal takeoff, horizontal landing, and it had gotten far enough. And then someone in, came in and canceled it. And every, all the data, all this work, years of research was thrown into the trash. And I think you wrote physically thrown into the trash. Yeah, I, I, I worked with and carpooled with the people involved. In, in dumping the trash? No, no, no. This was <laughs> years later. But they were very bitter about the way that ended. Explain to me, because I think this is the first time I'm asking this, explain to me why data in 1970s or 80s or 60s, why this data is so valuable that it would save time today. Is that, do you understand what I'm asking that question? Yes. Because yes. It's, it seems odd. I would say, no, no, start again. It's new. We need this and we could do it faster and cheaper and better. It, can you give it to me from that perspective? Okay, you may not like the answer. I know I want to, there's no like, this is pragmatic to me. I, we want to get a box of the roof and the door on the moon. We want to create the Mirth ecosystem, the Mirth economic system. You got to hear what you got to hear. Okay, well, Dinosaur was an Air Force program. Okay, and they were developing a metallic, uh, a high temperature metallic airplane with metallic heat shield. And they got, um, they were ready they had all the drawing release. They were ready to assemble the first vehicle. And the program got canceled by Robert McNamara for cost reasons, because they were going after a mission that the Corona satellite was already doing. And the Corona, it just started operating correctly. What, what is the Corona satellite? That was spying. They were spying on the Soviet okay. Union and China. They were taking pictures. And that was the original purpose of Dinosaur, was to fly over China and the Soviet Union and take photographs. So he said, well, we don't, this is not cost effective, and he canceled it. He wasn't even thinking of a technology. Well, now we, now, 10 years later, we're doing the space shuttle. And Eisenhower formed NASA as a civil organization, not a DOD organization. And he did that for a purpose. Uh, he, he wanted to claim that, that we, you know, 
that we were not going to militarize space. Well, NASA and the Air Force were competing for some missions. So NASA developed, they went and developed spacecraft, but they decided they wanted to use aluminum structure and a ceramic TPS system, which was dumber than dirt. <laughs> okay. And it ended in, you know, killing the crew on Columbia. Okay. All the, and, and, and the Air Force had flown their TPS system. They had launched it on a Thor and actually flown it and proven that it worked and it was lighter than what NASA was doing. But NASA was in competition with the Air Force at this time. And they were not about to use an Air Force solution to their problem, even though it was safer and lighter. So we got the shuttle. And the shuttle, um, the shuttle tile is, uh, what is it, uh, anhydromic? It, it absorbs water readily. So it has to be waterproofed or it would sit out in the Florida humidity. Be, be add, add weight on every second it sat. Yeah, it would essentially absorb three times its weight in water. And when you launched, the tile would get hot, the water would turn to steam and blow the tiles off. Mm -hmm. So they absolutely had to waterproof it. It took 18,000 man hours to waterproof the shuttle every time it returned and the material they used was extremely toxic. So they had to be in these escape suits, which is essentially a space suit with, with air being fed into it uh, from remote, remote location so that they, they wouldn't breathe any of the silane they were injecting into the tiles. So the shuttle originally was to fly every 160 hours turnaround and fly for $4.8 million a flight. By the time they rebuilt the engines, which was another mistake, and did the tile, it took 40 to 50 days to turn it around. And it was costing over 500 million a flight instead of 4.8. Okay. So that is why I say the loss of the dinosaur technology was a very, okay, had dinosaur flown then it would have been very difficult for NASA not to use in that technology. So the dinosaur was the Air Force's technology. NASA decided to take their own, but the country, the United States of America, decided to take the NASA route instead of the Air Force route. There was no sharing of the tech between them. If So that is if in fact it flew, but what about these pot, this pile of data? Like someone, I, I talking to one of our team members in Germany and he said, oh, if we only had the data, I'm thinking it's 25 year old data, it's 40 year old data. What does data, when it comes to rocketry, how do you use, why is it so, 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 so valuable? It's not the data per se, as much as it is, is the, the, the data results. In other words, had, had you proven, and, and that data exists. In other words, they, they flew, I think it was called Prime. Uh, they, they flew um, some test vehicles, small test vehicles with the data. And that was, Langley had, had that data. So NASA Langley had it, but NASA Langley was not in the loop in picking the shuttle. 
This is all politics, David. Yeah. Oh, I, the first thing I learned when I started in this Project Moon Hut and with NASA was the team that I sat with said to me, we've lost billions because of politics. And they gave me one example that I remember. There were many others that I could share as he said, do you know how you get a raise or you move up in NASA? Now I might be stabbing myself as I say this. So I'm not saying to be mean. It was what was shared with me and it was a surprise is they said, there's two things. You either have more people or more budget. And what you would do, or some people did, I don't know how true this is. This I've checked to talk to other people is you would delay a project and ask for more money so that you'd have more people and you had a higher position in NASA. That is correct. Okay. So no, I, I, I understand that it is a very political game, uh, space flight. And that's where someone like Elon is being able to play a different game. And he's able to, and, and I don't like to only speak about Elon because this needs to be an, an economic system. It needs to be a mirth economic system. We need to not have one entity that we're relying on. We need to be, have a full system of rockets, life support, or whatever technologies being developed by multiple players so that this economic system can grow and develop. If it's only on one, it becomes challenging. Now, Jeff Bezos up here in Seattle uh, has Blue Origin. And a lot of the people that used to work for me are now working at Blue Origin. And they're doing good job and they're not all that far behind Elon. It's just that they're they're going, they, they do it quietly. They're not uh, sharing as much data with the, with the press as, as SpaceX does. Uh, the, uh, I think it's the CEO is Bob Smith or something uh, who mm, runs Blue they, Origin. They just changed. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't remember. Well, the, the only reason I'm going to ask is that it, I'd like to get Bob or somebody at Blue Origin on our podcast. So that's where I was kind of going with it. So it's a, it's a means to help other people like you've helped us today. So uh, anything else to add? I could us... probably help you with that. Okay. I would love that. I, we've, we've had some amazing people, including yourself on the program. And I highly, highly thank you for taking the time. And for those of you listening, once again, we develop a title um, a month or two ago, whatever the timeline was. And then Dana goes out and he does his thing. He decides the program and every one of our guests does the same thing. I ask for no information, no outline, no, no questions, no nothing. And I don't have any questions when I start. I'm in the moment, I'm learning. And alongside of me, you're learning too. And so uh, I appreciate that you've, Dana, that you've taken the time to delve into this. And I appreciate you taking the time to explain some of these, some people might say basic concepts. However, I would argue that I've been around the world and I talk to people who are space enthusiasts and people in the space industry, and they often don't know these things. So it's, it's not a ubiquitous industry. Everybody doesn't know everything. And so I appreciate you taking the time to put all this together. So thank you very much, Dana. You're welcome. Is there one best way that sing people can get a hold of you? Um, my website is probably in its retired rocket doc, all lowercase, 
com. Retiredrocket.com. Doc. So, yeah. Doc. Say it again. Yeah. yeah. Retiredrocket.doc. D-O-C. I actually am a rocket scientist and I do have a doctorate. So we have a retiredrocket.com. Yes. So again, uh, we want to thank you for taking, for all of you out there who have taken the time in, out of your day to listen in. And I do, and I, both of us do, Dana, myself, and everybody within Project Moon Hut, hope that you've learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Now, the Project Moon Hut Foundation is we are looking to establish a box of the roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through this accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. What we're doing right now, talking about and, and working on developing this ecosystem, and then to take those endeavors, that paradigm shifting, these innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. And if you're interested in participating in Project Moon Hut, we are working on all sorts of technology from computer technology to biotech. We've got a whole plethora of different activities. We also, we're a 501c3. We are looking for contributions and we're looking for companies and organizations who could participate in what we're doing, whether it be from feasibility studies to helping us with, with data access and individuals and, and you name it. So please reach out to us. You can reach me at uh, david at moonhut.org. You can connect with us on Twitter at Project Moon Hut. Uh, mine is uh, at Goldsmith, if you want me. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook. Uh, even if you want to get to know me a little bit more, it's Instagram at David Goldsmith. So there are many ways to get a hold of us. And we would, uh, almost every single day, we are talking with people around the world who are participating in Project Moon Hut. And I don't say almost every day, every day we are. And we would love to have your participation. So please reach out to us. So with that said, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening. <laughs>